Hello and welcome to this big fight special as we count down to 2024 with heightened anticipation of what the year holds for us. We decided to bring to you five ideas that could shape the new year. The year 2023 brought forth many firsts. India hosted a historic G20 summit. Indian Space Research Organization became a trailblazer to land on Moon's South Pole. Indian economy became a bright spot amidst global economic slowdown. ChatGPT became a part of living room conversations. And AI only showed its challenges have just begun. Will 2024 witness a fight of ideas? And that's on The Big Fight today. made a science fiction dream come true. The customer service role is becoming more automated as tools like chatbots and virtual assistants handle a broader range of customer inquiries and requests. Research-centric positions like market research analyst and financial analyst are being performed by artificial intelligence. Many administrative tasks completed by paralegals are within the range of AI's capabilities. AI anchors became a fad as well, and we have just begun. The year witnessed a big rise of generalized AI chatbots. OpenAI's ChatGPT demonstrated how computers can have intelligent conversations with people. The growing popularity of AI will surge in 2024 with people and businesses across the globe rapidly experimenting with technology to meet this growing demand. Meta, in fact, is planning to introduce 28 different special purpose bots. And according to the World Economic Forum's The Future of Jobs report, AI is expected to replace 85 million jobs worldwide by 2024. Though that sounds scary, the report goes on to say that it will also create 97 million new jobs in that same time frame. AI also invaded privacy with defakes, forcing countries, including India, to issue regulations. So to discuss this, let me bring in my guests. Joining me first are two young professionals who were named in Forbes 30 Under 30. Abhinav and Raghav Agarwal are founders of Fluid AI. Let me begin by asking both of you, Abhinav and Raghav, is artificial intelligence now new beings like human beings among us? I think one of the big themes we're seeing that's going to come out next year and at Fluid AI, we, are, we already have some ex big experiments in our labs is autonomous agents is going to become a reality, which is basically a bunch of AIs working on their own, right? Right now, it's a very prompt culture. So you prompt the AI, the AI prompts back. But it's soon going to have these autonomous AIs that are able to interact with each other and solve a given problem. So whether it's handling a customer support call end to end with, you know, amazing voice and integrations at the back or whether it's an AI that's deciding what to invest into the stock market, they're just going to be completely autonomous and, and do the end to end for you. And, yeah, and when it comes to this whole Frankenstein thing, I think at Fluid AI, we have a very different opinion. I think what's going to happen is they're just going to be like AI beings among us, right? They're going to sort of be part of our day-to-day. -day. Like Abhinav was mentioning about investing. We're creating this AI for investing. 
uh you know that's like you know now you reach out to your wealth management advisor that's another being that you can reach out to for advice right so i don't think so they're going to sort of take over they're going to be advisory recommendationary those kind of things so that's what we feel yes we'll have to learn to adapt how to live with these new beings that we are sort of almost creating as a culture yes. but it's going to be very uh, it's going to be very supportive is what we believe but deep fakes has taken us in a negative direction what do you think will be the defining ai idea of 2024 we think one of the key ideas we are very excited about is going to be uh, the kind of interactions that mm. we'll be seeing in the future right i know deep fakes uh, took it in a negative light uh, but you know just like how sms texts you know and those emails from nigeria in the early 90s you know people get aware of them right and we'll figure out the technology or we'll figure out the human methodology and how to sort of identify that but what excites us is you know there's so many times when like for instance call center support right there's so many times when you're on hold for 20 minutes 25 minutes and you have a very simple query i think those kind of experiences where ai is going to make a huge impact in terms of allowing folks to just have free flowing conversations get answers instantaneously uh and secondly one area is creativity i think uh, we've not yet seen ai be really creative it's still you know we are prompting it we are telling it but like abhinav was talking about those autonomous agents when you just say to ai okay you know write this play and i want it to be funny and i want it to be set in 16th century hmm. and it can come up with something i think those are going to be really exciting avenues let me bring in ankush sabarwal he's the co-founder uh, of corova which is the world's first and the highest roi delivering human centric conversational ai platform ankur 2023 is ending on rather gloomy note you know vis-a-vis artificial intelligence there are so many job cuts being reported uh, will it be replacing humans i would say i think we will not i will not expect more disruption more things to come i think it is already hype being created i think it will narrow down i think more of the technologies and llms and gen ai is being launched uh, i think they have been launched not considering any specific use case in mind uh, i think next year uh, 2024 i think it would be more of being realistic Uh, more of being use case centric more of being actually solving some specific problems of the societies i think we would not see much of hype which we are seeing now uh, all for good for sure but i think next year would be more of consolidating um, reality checks and using all the technology being created in this year uh, for uh, solving specific problems i think uh, it would be more of uh, uh solving spec- specific stuff more narrowing do- down on the technology hype being created uh, okay. more of being realistic uh, more of uh, we'll see actual problems being solved with ai currently okay. it's all even creators do not know the technology which they have created would be used for what use case i think we'll start seeing actual use cases uh, actual problems uh, being solved next year Ankush Indian government has issued advisories to intermediaries for ensuring they can counter misinformation which is powered by the AI you know the menace of deep fakes do you see more and more countries coming up with policy interventions to handle these AI challenges Absolutely absolutely as i was saying saying it will narrow down and it will also be uh, regulatory checks and regulatory interventions Uh, right as i was uh, watching honorable it minister saying uh, during the launch of uh, gpay uh, gpay 
so he was saying we have to balance uh, between uh, the innovation and regulations and and see as we usually see right when we we perform some actions we do innovations we do um, uh, research we do launch products we see a new use cases being implemented using technology and then the laws come up and uh, of course uh, so when i'm saying uh, we will see the funnel getting narrowed down uh, it would be again getting contextual and also being regulated uh, yes uh, uh, i think uh, it's definitely a right point and right question uh, i definitely see uh, regulations coming up for good for the society all right uh, ankush thank you so much for joining us um, well you never know in 2024 you might just have an ai anchor for big fight so let's move on to our second big idea Twenty twenty four will be the biggest election year in history. Two billion voters in fifty countries will vote. That's forty one percent of the global population and forty two percent of the GDP. The world's largest democracy in India and the oldest democracy in US will vote in April, May, and November, respectively. More than nine hundred million people are registered to vote in India out of the population of one point four billion. Prime Minister Narendra Modi hopes to be re-elected for a third five-year term. Lok Sabha polls for 2024 will be the largest world election ever. More than 160 million registered Americans will be choosing their 60th U.S. president. Incumbent President Joe Biden hopes to secure a second term in office, while former President Donald Trump is hoping to secure a second non-consecutive term. then there will be elections in our neighborhood will uh, political stability return to pakistan is the big question the european union which crosses many borders will witness the world's biggest transnational elections more than 400 million voters will elect 720 members of the european parliament across 27 member countries with so many elections all across the world question we ask Will 2024 be the year that will decide the future of democracy? Manjeet Kriplani is executive director of Gateway House, which is a foreign policy think tank. She's joining me from Colombo. Manjeet, I appreciate your time. 41 percent of the world will be polling uh, next year. Bill, big elections, according to you. What will you be watching out for? Myra, thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, first, you know, these a lot of these are democracies that are going in uh, for elections. Uh, some of them are semi-democracies, but whichever way it is, they are still democracies. And um, what we're going to see for India in particular, this is the this is the defining period for the world because the way the elections are going to work out, these are big and small countries, and we know now that all countries matter, the big and small, the votes in the UN taking sides. which way who's going to trade with the dollar who's not going to do it etc uh, we know that but for india what's really really critical is three things one is we're going to have the three major blocks which are going to have three leaders six in south asia right this next year uh, maldives has already gone to the polls and we know how that went which is not in india's favor 10 countries of the g20 five of the brics plus So India has an interest in all three. We've got our own national election, 
and that will have an impact on the neighborhood and vice versa. In the G20, India is still part of the Troika. South Africa has an election next year, and it's going to be the president of the G20 in 2025. And finally, there's the BRICS Plus. And, you know, there is a new global game of foot here. So um, we have to pay attention. The biggest elections that really matter is the U.S. elections, which is going to be at the tail end of the year, our elections, which is going to be at the beginning of the year, and Russia is going in for elections. Um, you know, it's a whatever those are. Taiwan is going in for elections. So the hotspots of the world are, um, and the decision makers of the world, the big economic powers of the world, the big emerging markets of the world, these are all going in for elections. So we have to see, it's going to set the course for the next five years. Just five years? Or would you say that this will decide uh, the future of democracy? I don't think the future of democracy is in any danger at all. The very fact that you've got you know, almost half the world going in for elections, I mean, this is a wonderful thing. And really, democracies can, are not perfect things. There are semi-democracies, there are quasi-democracies, there are slight democracies. But the fact is that there is a will for people to participate in the elections of their leaders. So I think democracy is, in fact, doing much better now than it has ever done before. All right, Manjeet, I appreciate your time. We have uh, Richard Rosso. He's the chair of uh, U.S.-India Policy Strategic uh, Studies, which is the Center of Strategic and International Studies, joining me from uh, Washington, D.C. Richard, appreciate your time. Uh, um, you know, 50 countries going to polls. Uh, what do you think will take center stage in the political space? Well, there's a lot of issues, obviously, that have been driving election trends across the world. You know, this uh, is gearing towards nationalism, concerns about uh, too much integration, too much internationalism, uh, although occasionally bright spots in France and other places where they push back against that. Um, but I would say the one issue, whether people like it or not, that really does bring us together is climate change. And there, of course, you may have leaders coming in that don't want to be part of international cooperation on that front, others that are going to kind of double down. A lot of other issues that uh, elected officials will deal with on global issues, the rise of China, is a mixed bag. Uh, some uh, are actually uh, friendly towards China. Uh, others uh, consider China a great threat to the world order. So uh, a very much a mixed bag, but I think this uh, this push and pull towards conservatism uh, and then uh, the need for all countries to work together on climate change, uh, hopefully those will be two things that uh, break in the right direction with all these massive elections happening next year. Okay, Richard, in terms of... Uh... What are the elections which are being was, watched very carefully by the U.S. thinkers or experts? How much of Indian elections are of interest to you? Well, you know, I mean, a lot of the uh, elections that are happening next year, I mean, you think about some of the elections uh, like in Russia and Bangladesh, uh, where we're not expected to have free and fair elections. So I think we can probably guess who's going to win those elections. Uh, they don't get quite as much attention simply because they're, you know, Bangladesh is outside of most of the American mainstream interest, and and Russia, uh, we think that that's a bit of a lock. But we'll watch a lot more closely. I think the elections in India. Um, we've had a a good relationship, I think, with the Modi government on defense and security to some extent on commercial issues. But you know, concerns about some of uh, some of the political drivers that Modi has fed into, particularly at times the BJP's been weak. And for us, of course, Mexico being our next door neighbor. Um, we've got a government there today that uh, has been uh, more aggressive and concerned about uh, too much entanglement with the United States. 
And yet so many U.S. companies have uh, dramatic uh, expansion of supply chains into Mexico. A lot of Americans have uh, their heritage uh, from Mexico. So keeping a good relationship with our massive southern neighbor and making sure that uh, both countries keep uh, a relative uh, ideal understanding about border controls is very important, too. So um, so a lot of these elections that are happening are either outside our, our, the, the, the interest zone for most Americans. Uh, some, we think we know what's going to happen for some of the big elections. Um, but I would say India and Mexico are two that uh, weigh pretty heavily to see what's going to happen for a lot of Americans. All right, Richard Rosso, appreciate your time. And when democracy fails, it creates chaos. Let's move to a topic where a nation's prime minister predicted a long and difficult war. We enter 2023 with one war, but the year is ending with three major conflicts, all of which aren't showing any signs of ending. On October 7th, 2023, terror group Hamas crossed over from the Gaza Strip to launch a shockingly coordinated attack by air, water and land on Israel. The deadly terror attack began the war, which has claimed over 19,000 innocent lives so far. The fear that other countries in the Middle East may soon become embroiled in this ongoing conflict in one way or another is real. While Russian President Vladimir Putin condemned Israel's incessant bombing of Palestine's uh, Gaza Strip, he also promised to intensify the offensive in Ukraine. Though Moscow promised a quick victory over Ukraine nearly two years ago, no end is there inside of the fighting which is ongoing. Whether Putin will end this war will depend on the outcome of the elections. On the other hand, Ukraine alliances with the US and Europe could be destabilized further in 2024, putting the future of military aid packages in doubt. There are many other life conflicts stretching both the globe and the alphabet from Afghanistan all the way to Yemen. And in these times, as Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, predicted long and difficult war, what rings louder is Prime Minister Narendra Modi's message of this not being an era of war. So can there be peace? Can 2024 be that watershed year when the conflicts could end? And joining me first is Yurash. He is a Ukrainian MP. Appreciate your time. I can see you in uh, army fatigues as we usher in the new year what do you think will happen will that be a year without wars all the wars end uh the reality is i'm beside the member of parliament i'm a mobilized soldier and i'm talking to you from the front lines where i have a moment uh, and speaking with uh, your amazing nation is a best chance to use that moment to try and uh, tell as much as possible about the realities of this horrific war which is happening and killing and destroying day in day out night in night out are you hoping that the war will end this year the coming year 2024 of course as soon as russians leave our country alone the war will end and i hope they leave our country alone as soon as possible all right, Yuraj, I appreciate your time. Let me bring in Dr. C. Rajamohan, Senior Fellow of Asia Society Policy Institute. Uh, Dr. Rajamohan, I appreciate your time. 2024 will be also the year uh, which will witness many elections. Before I talk about the war, I want to understand from you, uh, how do you see 
the things change in democracies in particular? Look, I think uh, the, that elections are taking place in many countries. That is true. Uh, many large countries, including India, US, Russia, uh, you have elections in Pakistan, Bangladesh, a whole lot of countries. But I don't think you can draw a general conclusion about democracy around the world. Uh, each country has its own specific uh, set of issues and complexities. So I would say the impact is not on democracy, but like, uh, so for example, if Trump is elected in the U.S., uh, there is a certain consequences that will follow in terms of U.S. policy uh, that will have a great bearing on the on the international system. Uh, no one is betting that uh, President Putin uh, will lose the election, but so so I, I think it's broadly predictable. In Pakistan, we know uh, whatever the talk about elections is. Finally, the army will select uh, the, the the next prime minister. So in India, the prime minister is so strong that uh, there are very few doubts now uh, of what's going to happen in the election. So, so I think you have to take it country by country rather than framing it as a single year of democracy uh, or uh, something in that manner. Okay. Dr. Ralmon, uh, ongoing wars, Russia-Ukraine war, Israel-Hamas, uh, there is a great degree of instability as well. Do you see a new axis emerge in, in 2024? Absolutely. And I think in all the three, of course, the U.S. Is a, is a key player. So what we are seeing is the sudden uh, kind of destabilization of all the three major theaters in the world. Uh, one is Europe, of course, historically, last 100 years. It's been the, the central theater where war and peace uh, have, have, uh, have been the principal issues. Uh, the peace of last 30, 40 years is, uh, is shattered. So the Russia does not like uh, the existing arrangements in Europe. It's thought, it thinks that it has been, uh, you know, uh, you know, the deals that were made in 1991 were undone. So therefore, it wants a revision of the European security order. But Europe is not ready to give it. So, so in a way, uh, what happens next year in these elections will be will be of consequence. Second theater is the Middle East. Uh, just when we thought Middle East was reasonably stable, uh, we have the Gaza war. And I suspect in in uh, in the case of Middle East, both Israel and Iran are trying to revise the regional order. Uh, and I think that uh, is going to, it's already destabilized the system quite significantly. And at this point, it does not look like uh, how this can be stabilized. So we are in for a pretty turbulent era in the, in the Middle East. And then in East Asia, things have not come to uh, shooting yet. But I think the tensions between China and the US uh, on China's claims that it will unify Taiwan with or without peaceful means, a China's pressure against the Philippines, a China's pressure against India. We've been seeing a slow burn of issues here. But if Taiwan, if China tries to take Taiwan, I mean, the U.S. will get directly involved. So unlike in the uh, in the in Europe, uh, the U.S. could get withdrawn more directly into conflict with China if China does step forward. But but at this point, uh, we have no clue which way the dice is going to roll. Okay. Tell me, who will be the peacemaker in all these wars, sir? I mean, you are really hopeful. I mean, there will be a peacemaker. I mean, I think Europe, uh, which has had peace for almost uh, 75 years, is struggling uh, to, to come to a settlement on Ukraine and more broadly, uh, an understanding with, with Russia. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, the U.S. is still the main interlocutor uh, between, uh, you know, we saw U.S. is the one which negotiated the hostage release. 
because it still has some leverage with Israel uh, and the Arabs, but it has no leverage with Iran, uh, which is the one of the, you know, one which is really uh, challenging the the existing order. Uh, in the East Asia, of course, again, uh, the U.S. is the dominant player in terms of how uh, it can settle things. So, so I, I think using word peace uh, is is somewhat of a, a misnomer here. The question is who has the power and the clout to negotiate new arrangements for stabilizing these regions. So I think that's where uh, what the U.S. does is going to be consequential. And whether Russia and China will facilitate that, uh, whether Russia and China will undermine that, uh, at this point, Russia and China are daggers drawn with the United States. So the U.S. capacity to actually get things done is is uh, is also shaky. Okay, so let me rephrase it and not talk about peace, but say what will be the nature of these arrangements? Will it be different from what we have seen in the past? Look, the, yes, there will be. I mean, that is the point. I mean, in Europe, Russia is saying the existing order needs to be revised. NATO needs to go back to the 1997 borders. Uh, and that it needs a security sphere of it needs a sphere of influence in Eastern and Central Europe. But that the Russian desire for such an arrangement is not acceptable to the Central European states. It's not acceptable to uh, to, to the US. So how will they come to a compromise? I mean, uh, uh, but that system has broken down. So when I talk about an arrangement here, there has to be a compromise if neither side wins. Uh, so at that point, compromises will have to be made in Russian call for a fundamental division of the European order and the European interest in stable borders. Uh, so there, how much of a territory of Ukraine can be sacrificed? Uh, those will be the kind of uh, issues. So the question of sovereignty of Central European states, the question of security of Russia and the role of the United States and uh, NATO in, in facilitating that. These All these issues are contentious and I think it's going to be problematic. In, in Asia... Uh, Taiwan say, sorry, Xi Jinping says he has the right to integrate uh, Taiwan. So uh, how that proceeds, uh, uh, we don't know. Uh, there, the existing arrangements are being broken down. I mean, there's an idea that the U.S. would respect it, uh, one China policy and the China would only do peaceful integration of uh, Taiwan. So that is breaking down. We don't know if there's a fresh arrangement can be made. And on top of it, all these are being tested by the emergence of new technologies. The drone warfare we've seen the rise of artificial intelligence. So how do these technologies affect the military balance? Uh, how do the new tactics of the gray zone conflict that we're seeing in Red Sea, uh, how do they undermine deterrence? Uh, how do they undermine peace? Those are more structural uh, issues that are going to affect all these processes that we are that we are talked about. What about India, Dr. Rajamon? Sure. I mean, I, I think... Uh, we have a situation uh, with China. Uh, now we're into the fourth winter. We have 60,000 troops deployed at uh, 17,000 feet. Uh, no resolution in sight yet. Uh, so the question is, will 2024 be any better than 2022 and 2023? Uh, the negotiations with China uh, have been going on, but without no real progress in terms of uh, beyond disengagement uh, in a couple of places, but structurally restoring the status quo uh, ante before uh, 2020 summer, uh, we are nowhere near it. So that's where we are. In the case of Pakistan, we've had a, a fragile peace. Uh, there was a ceasefire in 2021, February. That's largely held, but in the last few weeks, there are signs that that might be breaking down. So we have problems there. And meanwhile, 
Hmm. Uh, India's it's not just on the land borders. Uh, now, with the attacks on the Indian shipping in the Arabian Sea, uh, the maritime frontier too is going to be hmm. very, very consequential because that's where India's trade is going to be affected. India's energy imports are going to be affected. So I think we're beginning to see all these years, India could say, look, there's no real maritime threat, uh, except the Chinese coming into the ocean in a, in a broad way. Hmm. There is a direct attack on shipping coming into hmm. India. So that is that will play out in the in the next few days. All right. Dr. Rajamoon, really appreciate your time. Let me also try and get an Israeli perspective. Uh, Limor Blatter, Deputy Counsel General Israel, is joining us from Bengaluru. Uh, Limor, you know, certainly one question that will be asked because of this ongoing Israel, uh, Israel Hamas conflict, will 2024 be the year that will see the end of wars? And that being one of them. In the end of the day, we're looking for peace. We want to live with, uh, in peace with our neighbors. We're living in a difficult region. Um, and our goal is uh, definitely to, to have peace with our neighbors and to have them live well. And right now, unfortunately, uh, the events of the 7th of October, uh, the massacre, the horrible massacre and the invasion of the Hamas uh, terrorists to Israel, um, um, uh, has uh, deeply, deeply uh, created a situation where uh, Israel has to right now to defend itself and to uh, do whatever it can in order to destroy Hamas and to make sure that something like that never happens again. And of course, um, the situation uh, Israel is uh, dealing with uh, releasing the hostages, still 129 hostages that are held in Gaza. Uh, including uh, children, babies, uh, women, elderly. These people are still there. So um, we're, hoping, we're hoping only for peace. We don't want to fight with anyone. We're not interested in war. Uh, and our hope is, first of all, to bring the hostages back, to bring back, uh, bring back uh, the safety, the security to the state of Israel. And make sure that something that happened like this will not happen again. And for that, we have to work on destroying Hamas. Uh, and of course, we're not only fighting uh, the front uh, with Gaza. Uh, the uh, we're fighting uh, with Hezbollah. We have the Houthis that are shooting, that are a proxy of Iran, that are always uh, threatening Israel, and they're uh, also uh, firing rockets. Uh, uh, towards uh, ships and uh, jeopardizing uh, the freedom of trade. So everything is, the whole area is right now uh, being mandated by, uh, by uh, uh, and supported by uh, the, re the Iranian regime, which is only interested in denying that peace and not, uh, and, and fighting Israel, which is representing the free world. Okay, Ms. Blader, uh, can Israel-Saudi normalization agreement still happen? Or is it a distant dream? Uh, we are interested in peace with anyone that wants to have peace with us. That's that's the only thing I can. Uh, we we are we're not interested in having any enemies, and for us, uh, anyone that wants to do peace with Israel, we would be very happy to. So, definitely, if we will have allies for that, it's uh, we we will always be interested. And uh, we've seen how Israel can do uh, peace uh, agreements with the Arab countries. So. We're very, very, uh, we're always hopeful to get more, uh, um, to get more warm relationships with whoever we can. All right, Limor, appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
So how much will these wars impact world economy? That's our next big idea. Should there be optimism about the state of our economy? Many experts say yes, despite the global repercussions of the Israel-Hamas and Russia-Ukraine wars. Heads of states, global institutions and economists are all gung-ho on India's prospects for economic growth over the next two decades. As India marches on towards high growth figures, the major 2024 factors are likely to be how well the government manages to curb inflation, especially food inflation, and also whether our employment generation figures can actually translate to more jobs on the ground. The 2024 Lok Sabha election is also likely to play a key role in how the future government decides economic policies. In the post-COVID era, when it comes to manufacturing, has India become the go-to destination? The question is also, can India also absorb the shock of overall slowdown in its neighborhood countries and stagnation in the developed countries? Joining me to talk about it is Professor Arvind Panagria. He's the professor of economics at the Columbia University. He's joining me from New York City. Professor Panagria, always a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, in the world of economics, money, policy, what do you think you'll be watching out for in 2024? Well, you know, uh, it's a wide-ranging question, uh, but uh, uh, I think we'll now see a bit of a shift from pessimism to optimism. Uh, global economy was seen to be in recession or going into recession. But it was, uh, it turned out to be neither in recession nor going into recession. Uh, we see uh, uh, the United States growing in 2023 uh, between 2 and 3%, uh, closer to 3 actually. Uh, and in the last quarter that we had numbers for, which is the third quarter of 2023, growth rate was about 5%. So uh, uh, Europe is is still a little bit uh, soft. Uh, and so there is some problems uh, there. Uh, and uh, China seems to be coming out a bit better than previously thought. Uh, and India, of course, is doing fantastically well. I mean, my own view now is that, you know, in India, we sort of worry about what the global economy is going to look like. But instead, we should be worrying about uh, lifting up the global economy, you know, our uh, share in the uh, uh, that is our contribution to the global economy's growth uh, has been growing uh, uh, now and it's uh, well about double digit levels. And Professor Panagria, you know, hedge fund managers, several policy institutes, watchers say India is the country to watch out for. Do you think there would be that visible shift which has perhaps begun in some way of uh, manufacturing units moving from China to India? Uh, there, I think, has to happen now. It's already happening. In fact, you know, 2023 20, uh, uh, already looked a, a, a lot better than 2022. Uh, I'm just going by, you know, what you see in the news reports because the actual data take a longer time to come out. But going by those reports, clearly 2023 looked a lot better than 2022. Uh, and the buzz around India is very, very strong. Uh, India also, I think, you know, policy-wise is sending out good signals, meaning that, you know, uh, the, the, the government really is very receptive uh, uh, to the foreign investors uh, uh, trying to, you know, even though 
uh, it, it still remains a difficult place to do business in the view of you know foreign investors generally when I speak to them here. Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, they they uh, uh, you know selectively at least the government tries to uh, uh, remove the barriers uh, for for the large investors. So that is all a good sign, uh, and uh, the the movement out of uh, China is not about to stop. I think you know the uh, trajectory of China looks uh, uh, pessimistic overall uh, uh, in the longer term. So um, uh, certainly, I think you know I would expect India to uh, be uh, also. By the way, another uh, good development is the decline in the interest rates, and in, or at least the prospects of a decline in the interest rates in the United States. Uh, that ought to also bring capital, you know, uh, out of the uh, United States into the emerging markets back. Uh, and that should help India in particular, because, you know, again, uh, when the capital wants to go to emerging markets, where is it going to go to? India is clearly a prime destination. And what about this constant fear of uh, the impending recession in the developed world, uh, Professor Panagriya? See, this has been going on and on after COVID, uh, and and each time I get asked, uh, particularly in the Indian press, you know, I sort of ask, well, where is the recession? Uh, and I ought to ask you the same question. Uh, uh, Europe is a little softer, so you know, but even Europe, you know, if you talk of recession, it will be at best a mild recession because you know the decline in the last quarter, third, third quarter of 2023, uh, in the European GDP was about 0.1 percent. Uh, uh, now, you know, by definition, recession means, you know, decline in in the GDP for two consecutive quarters. So we will see what happens in the fourth quarter. But even Europe, you know, if there is a recession, it will be very, very mild. Uh, but the United States economy is kicking quite robustly, uh, you know, uh, uh, beating all the uh, forecasts. Uh, you know, that is where uh, continuously uh, fears were being expressed. And now the Fed having already said that, you know, now it is going to actually go easier on uh, uh, interest rates. Uh, it, it, it is contemplating two to three increases in uh, decreases in the uh, interest rates in the next year. Uh, I don't see any prospects really of recession. And uh, even Chinese economy, which overall is in sort of, you know, growth rate has declined, not about, you know, but uh, uh, IMF raised its forecast uh, to about a little above 5% now for uh, the 2023 and for 2024 is forecasting 4.6%. Uh, so these are really the two large, I mean, you know, uh, among the large regions, you've got the US, Europe, China, and then comes India. Uh, but uh, 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 US and China look reasonably good. Uh, Europe a little soft, uh, uh, India very robust. So I think, you know, uh, 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 we ought to do quite well in 2024. And uh, I'll continue this conversation with you, Professor Panagri. I appreciate your time. Joining us now is Soumya Kanti Ghosh. She is a, a group chief economic advisor of SBI. Uh, really appreciate your time, Mr. Ghosh. Uh, what's in its store for India? Let's uh, put the lens on India, us. Yeah, thank you, Maria. I think uh, the as 2023 draws to a close, I think, if we ponder over what has happened over the last two to three years, if I just take an, a little bit longer perspective and go back to the past, I think there has been significant achievements as far as India has been concerned. As you know that the last several years, last 15 years, there has been several crises. In 2008, we had the global financial crisis. 20, we had the pandemic. 21, we had the second wave. 22, we had the war. 
23 we had again another war at Middle East. So despite all these wars, and this is basically all tail events, meaning that this happens once in 100 years, India has actually achieved remarkable success in terms of its growth rate. This year, the growth rate, as you know, is possibly going to exceed 7%. Last year, it was more than 7%. For three successive years, the growth rate has been more than 7%. And if you look into the numbers also, in terms of the various leading indicators, as you move on to 2024, in terms of the markets, in terms of the economy, in terms of the rural indicators, in terms of the urban indicators, in terms of the inflation, in terms of the deficit, even in terms of the programs, the social the inclusive programs that the government is running, I think all of these make us optimistic about an even better 2024. But Mr. Ghosh, we really do not uh, live in silos. How much of the world uh, slowdown will impact us? No, I think that's a fair question to ask. Uh, the point to note is that if you uh, have seen for the last two to three years, the global economy has continued to be quite uncertain. Even as the econo global economy has continued to uncertain in 2024, it may still look uncertain because you don't know what is going to be the likely impact of the rate hikes by the advanced economy central banks. But the interesting point is that I think our regulators, the Reserve Bank of India and the government has actually acted in collusion. And this has been one of the most important policy, coordinated policy response post-pandemic when both of them work in inclusion. The other the one, the government working on trying to target the benefits at the bottom of the pyramid and the central bank trying to front load the policy actions so that the inflation, which was of course a major threat for most, most of the economies, including India in 2023, the threat actually decelerates quickly. And to both the extent, I think both the regulators have been successful doing that. As you know, that the central bank, the RBI, has in fact front-loaded most of the rate hikes. And now in a situation, we are seeing that the inflation is slowly coming under control. So that will actually open up the space for monetary policy actions for uh, uh, the adverse economy central banks and possibly the central bank in India towards the middle of next year. The important, the, but the only thing which we need to be a little bit careful about is an uncertain global economy. If there is a slowdown in the global economy, there could be some impact on our exports. But the good thing is that even on the export side, the service exports has more than compensated the goods export. Just to give you a number, we had 400 and 770 billion exports of goods and services, I think in 2000 last year, of which 354 billion was service exports and around 420 billion was goods exports. So at some point of time, the service exports is actually going to outpace the goods export if we continue in this pattern. And I think that has been one of the several things which has changed over the last couple of years to give us a solace of hope that even in these uncertain circumstances, some things will come up which will insulate the Indian economy from the vagaries of the of an uncertain world in future. All right, uh, Soumya Kanti Ghosh, I appreciate your time. On that note, we are slipping into a short break. You don't have to go anywhere because Big Fight will be taking you to a completely different world altogether. So stay with us. So from AI to worldwide elections to economics, now we are moving to 
and outer space. India will begin 2024 with a note of optimism right at the start. ISRO's Aditya L1 mission is expected to reach its destination on 6th of January. This will be a major push in India's space exploration program after the heavy success of the country's moon, moon mission this year. Another key milestone is expected to be the launch of NISAR, the Low Earth Orbit Observatory jointly developed by NASA and ISRO in the first quarter of 2024. NISAR data will help scientists observe climate change in great detail and its success may be the beginning of many more collaborations between ISRO and NASA, something that is expected to accelerate India's space program immensely. India plans to launch a new orbiter to Venus called Shukrayan in 2024 too. On the international front, Russian and U.S. space agencies have agreed to keep working together to deliver crews to the International Space Station until at least 2025. The space sector, including its so-called cross-flights that involve sending crews from different nationalities on one spacecraft, is a rare area of cooperation remaining between Moscow and Washington since Russian troops uh, sent... Russia, in fact, entered and sent troops to Ukraine. To talk about it, let me go straight to New York City, where Dr. Amitabh Ghosh, NASA scientist, is joining us live. Dr. Ghosh, really appreciate your time. 2023 will be known for India becoming the first country to land in the southern polar region of Moon. What do you think 2024 will be about in the space of space and technology? Well, there is a lot of exciting problems out there. So let me just run through some of them. Um, one is, um, so far, if you, when you saw launch vehicles, they launched and then they were destroyed. They fell into the sea and they were destroyed. And as a result, launch costs were very high. So every time you flew something, you had to also account for the cost of the hardware. So what Elon Musk is doing, he's developing something called Starship, where the entire um, vehicle, launch vehicle can be reused. This will lower costs by as much as 95 percent. Um, this will make um, missions to Mars affordable, human missions to Mars. Uh, this will make missions to other planets much more affordable, like um, missions to Jupiter probably were very expensive. That would come down. And then it also, there's a promise of point-to-point -point transportation on Earth. Uh, so you could fly from one place to another on Earth in maybe 30 seconds. 30 minutes. So that is, I think, the most exciting thing. The second exciting thing is perhaps humans will go back to the moon, this time not to explore, but to actually set up a base, much like the International Space Station. So in, in addition to the um, uh, base by uh, NASA, which is the Artemis program, Jeff Bezos, Blue Origin, is also planning to set up a base. So that is going to be fascinating to see uh, humans on, on the moon um, 365 days a year. Um, another interesting thing, which is probably not as much in the news glare, is that NASA is about to launch a satellite to Europa. Um, Europa is a satellite of, um, um, in the outer solar system of Jupiter. And why is it so fascinating? So below the crust of Europa, there is an hmm. ocean, and the ocean carries 
double the volume of water on all of Earth's oceans combined. There's so, so there's so much water um, there, and it's a salty ocean. And it is since it's under the crust, maybe 10 kilometers under the crust, it is absolutely dark. And, um, and what is the similarity with Earth? The similarity with Earth is the Earth oceans are also dark below a certain depth, maybe one kilometer. And yet there is, it is teeming with life. So could Europa be teeming with life? So, um, so in Mars, we, we, we know that there's water there, but we're probably um, getting to the th- place where there's no current life here. But in Europa, there, be, there can be current life. So there's going to be a mission there. And I'm sure there's going to be follow-up missions. And I know there is prototypes being tested here on, um, on Earth under Antarctica, um, like robotic submarines, to go into those oceans and see whether there is present life on, on Europa. Um, then there is um, about Mars. Where are we about Mars? In Mars, we know that there was past water, definitely. But is, was there past life? Was there past fossils? Um, is there present micro um, organisms. So to address that, uh, there's a sample return mission from NASA, which is which is trying to take off maybe later part of the decade. Um, and I, and and once those samples arrive in uh, laboratories on Earth, we'll have a very good idea of whether Mars has life or not. Setting up of a base on Moon, that certainly sounds really fascinating. So Europa is next, not Venus, because, you know, India plans to launch a new orbiter to Venus called Shukriyan in 2024. So it's a fascinating place. It's very close to Earth. And uh, the Russians have sent a whole lot of missions. The thing about Venus is that the surface is very hot, more than 500 degrees centigrade. So all the uh, missions, the Russian missions which landed on Earth, on Venus um, were destroyed pretty quickly, but they did give some information. But India is not doing a lander, uh, it's doing an orbiter, which will teach a lot about the climate. And the interesting thing about Venus is to understand why did Venus evolve the way it did. did. And it seems that they had a runaway greenhouse effect. So this is to do with climate change. So um, what is runaway greenhouse effect? at some point, this is um, called feedback loops. So you have a negative. Basically, you have a situation where this, the global warming on Venus became worse and worse with time. So why did it happen? And then another interesting thing about Venus is there was a gas which was de- detected called phosphine, which is related to life on. Um, Venus and 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 it is controversial whether it's really phosphine or not, but there's something to check out whether maybe in some miracle there is some life form on Venus. If you recall, hydrothermal vents on Earth do uh, have microscopic life, so it's very surprising that in extreme environments there can still be life. So so yes, this was about the Venus mission. All right. A lot of fascinating thoughts there. Thank you so much, sir. Well, that's all from me and the entire team. Hope you liked what we have uh, compiled for you in this last episode of 2023 of Big Fight. Uh, It has ended without any shouting, without any fighting. See you next year.